Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Russian influence is a big topic. We'll discuss how much, how too much focus can on Russia can obscure important truths. Cannabis looks like it's on its way to legalization in South Africa. I'll talk with the man that's making that happen. And Reverend Alex Awad wants more Christians to visit Christians in the Holy Land. We'll hear about education and the peace process. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Between Robert Mueller's investigation and the Trump industry's business dealings with Russia, it can sometimes seem like Russia news is the only news there is. My guest, Terrell Germain Starr, is a Russia specialist, and we're going to talk about some of the things we obscure if we overemphasize Russia in the news. Terrell Germain Starr is a senior reporter at The Root, and he is currently working on a book proposal that analyzes U.S.-Russian relations from a black perspective. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Happy to be on the show. Uh, tell us what you're thinking about Russia. You're a Russia specialist who is kind of sick of Russia in the news. Well, well here's a part of the problem, right? I feel like we're we're talking about Russia, but we're not really learning about the nation. And much of my criticism of the coverage has to do with the fact that essentially Russia is being scapegoated for larger racial issues that have already taken place. In America, this idea of fake news and disinformation. And one of the themes of my one of my articles about it was titled Russia is Boring. I know it was it was designed to pull people in. But part of my gripe has been that America has waged disinformation campaigns against its own citizenry citizenry for decades. You know, there were there are stories that were falsified in American news publications about black men allegedly raping white women, you know, and you know, this, you know, was a, a riot in Atlanta erupted in the early nineteen hundreds as a result of this. You know, um what I would like to see in our coverage is more of uh, more of a dialogue in which Americans can feel engaged in having a conversation. You see the same kind of talking here as the same, you know, former ambassador from this place, the same diplomat or the think tank person. And I think that most Americans that I talk to going around the country as I cover national politics feel like they're so overwhelmed that they're just saying this is not even a priority for me anymore. And I think that's a very dangerous um, pattern that's going on. And I think we're well advised to just, you know, to, to, to really uh, be aware of that. One of the things you wrote is, if Russian bots can undo in one election cycle what it took centuries to build, does America really have a democracy at all? Um, that's an interesting point. Yeah. And so I think part of the, the reason is that we have to start really um, asking questions about is America living up to its democratic principles, right? And if you and I think one of the things that makes my outlook on Russia unique is that you have guys who, and it's mostly men, 
who study this field and they look at Russian like foreign policy only through that lens. When I walk out into the streets of Chicago or elsewhere, my skin color makes me eligible, eligible to be shot by police. Right. And so when I go into circles and I talk about Russia or Ukraine, where, where I go mostly, um, they don't have that framework. And so I have a more critical eye about America. And so I don't extol its virtues to the same extent as a lot of my peers, because I have been on the receiving end of many of its negative consequences. And that's a democracy that does not completely look at minorities as as full people. And that informs how I view policy. And so I look at Russia in 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 America in many respects as imperial peers, right? And so, you know, there's a a professor at Southern University Southern Illinois University. Her name is Sophia Wilson. She's a Ukrainian and she talks about post uh colonialism and post imperialism, right? And so, you know, Ukraine is very much a post um a post uh, you know like a colonial state in that it's um and that it's a it's one of the former republics that was um, essentially colonized by Russia, and Russia is post imperial. And so, this post imperial activity that Russia is waging against Ukraine, you know, it, is a story that should definitely be covered and go into the details of it. But America is also an imperial nation, so for every Ukraine, you have a South, you know, you have you could pick any country in South America and talk about, you know, uh, you, you could talk about, you know, CIA involvement and disruption of. Of, of elections, but um, people don't want to hear about America in that light, and it's difficult because America always has to be at the top in this, in this above reproaching it. I don't think it should be that way. So there's been a lot of study and discussion about why people voted for President Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a new study out that talks about how economics was not really the issue, that status was the issue. Uh, people were able to overlook all that they already knew about Donald Trump in Russia when election time came and vote for him for um, particular reasons of status and privilege. And uh, this is a, a reality that if we just talk about Russia all the time, that it's kind of obscuring. Here's the irony of it, right? The Republican Party prided itself on being the tough one Russia party, right? Don't you find it interesting that Trump is being forgiven or is you know or, or or the issue of of his dealings have been ignored uh why in my opinion by the republican party uh and we just you know before 2016 had a president named you know Barack Obama and many republicans according to studies you know believed pejoratively that he was a muslim that was born in Kenya there are people who genuinely believe that and yet you have a person who, according to Gary Gasparov, you know, uh, to paraphrase him, has more connections to Russia than Aeroflot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, so, so I think going back to your primary point, yes, uh, Trump was primarily elected because he's here to defend and stand up for American whiteness. And we have not resolved the conversation of race. We have not resolved the conversation of slavery, right? And that those are very painful wounds that are manifesting itself in people um, who lack a historical context and a historical appreciate, appreciation, excuse me. Um, it's, a, it's hard for them to look at it that way because if you look at those wounds, that means you have to peel back all that historical pain and you have to do a lot of self-reflection. And it, it's another irony of mine. And, and when I talk about Russia, it's boring because... You know, 
minorities, especially black people, are very, you know, um, analyzed. You know, if you're if you're you know, if you're um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, you know, go to school, be the best that you can be. All these things like there is a moral impetus on us to behave and act right. Right. And so when you look at the people who support Trump, um, you know, who ignore his xenophobia, his, you know, his transphobia, every single phobia that a human being could possibly have is just kind of brushed under the the bus. And what's the only reason it is? It's, it's certainly to support American whiteness. And we're seeing that. And I think that our media is not doing the best job of taking it head on. I'm talking with Terrell Germain Starr, senior reporter for The Root. He's currently writing a book that analyzes U.S.-Russian relations from a black perspective. What would it look like if our media were analyzing it head on? Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. So I think we do it really well at The Root. (laughs) You know, so I encourage people to go to theroot.com where I'm a reporter there. We have a, a really talented group of of writers that take on a conversation of race that's not afraid to have a conversation about race. We're not afraid to use the word racism and racist. Um, so this study that was uh, that that was uh, published in the Washington Post, it is something that black reporters, my people of color, have been talking about long before. We didn't need a study to do you know to do this right, and I think. It's one of those things where we still have a hard time um, talking about our participation in white supremacy, right? And so what that means is all of us, all Americans, me, you, everybody, we are eligible to participate in white supremacy, whether we want to or not, right? And so that means that as a black person, I am eligible to be a victim of white supremacy, being, you know, being shot down by police, you know, being accosted, uh, violently, violently attacked by skinheads. It doesn't matter who I am. My skin color makes me eligible. Um, it makes me eligible to be stereotyped, to be racially profiled. A white person in America is eligible to participate in that racism, whether they want to or not. And so I think what's the, the the main problem in the conversations about race is that I think for as long as we've been alive, black people have grown to understand that there are elements that our race creates, environments that our race creates that is beyond our control. And we are constantly taught to work around it. I think with my white brothers and sisters, we you know the the issue with them is that they don't often see that they're that they 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 claim an agency that white supremacy does not allow them to have but white privilege makes them think that they have an agency that they can say oh I'm not one of those people so that's not my problem and i think that's where and i think that's where the trouble lies what did you think when you heard about some of the studies that came out and said uh, in areas of the country that uh, voted for Trump really strongly, there is less diversity um, in you know places mm-hmm. that are not uh, urban areas and places that are uh, Iowa and places that are Wisconsin. Does that make sense to you? I mean, if there were more more diverse country, would that make the problem? better no <laughs> I, I don't I don't think that proximity to whiteness makes a person less racist just no more than a proximity to a person who's gay or a person who's trans that's not going to make you any less 
homophobic. Um, there are plenty, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, my, my saying is that there are plenty of, uh, there are plenty of people who own slaves, right? You know what I'm saying? You're being around, you know, like during slavery. I mean, like you can't say that they, just because they're around black people that they weren't racist. No, they actually were slave owners, right? So, no, I, I don't think that ever makes sense. And I think that when we have conversations about this, people say more diversity matters. And, and, and I don't think that's where it is. I think where it is is that you have to look inside yourself and look at your own stereotypes. And so... I, when I talk to people about how I became interested in Ukraine, I tell this, I'll give you their bridge version of it, is that uh, I went to, um, you know, basically I went to a historically black college. And um, I actually became interested in this field, you know, while I was a student at Philander Smith College. I went to Russia to volunteer for a summer. Loved the experience. And, you know, I talk to um, – and, and then I went on to uh, travel to different parts of the region. And I, you'll be surprised that – I ran into so many, um, you know, people, whether it be Russians, Ukrainians, um, you know, like uh, or in, or any other kind of Slavic person. And it's a region that has a whole lot of Jewish people. Right. You'll be surprised how many co- people come to me as a black person and say anti-Semitic things about, you know, Jewish people. I'm like, you know, and so it's a country, it's, it, the regions, you know, are full of people who are Jewish people, but like and surrounded by them, but they still say, Jew, you know, like anti-Semitic things. And so I don't think that more diversity is a problem. I think people individually need to look inside of themselves um, and, and deal with their own, um, to deal with their own um, prejudices. And I think it's a very painful Journey is one that uh, oftentimes does not work best if you do it online um, <laughs> at, at all, because I think that there are so many there. You need to have circles, space where you can grow and develop into a better person. But I think the best way, the best response to it is definitely not by saying, hey, we're going to put more black people or more Latino people in your community. And that's going to make you a better non-racist person. That never, ever works. I, I haven't seen that template work anywhere. <laughs> Terrell Jermaine Starr is a senior reporter at The Root. You can read his columns there. He is writing a book that analyzes U.S.-Russian relations from a black perspective. Thanks a lot for joining us. I hope people check out your Twitter feed and your, and your book. It's terrific. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the legalization of cannabis in South Africa. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. See me with her. I just got it from my home. 
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Legalization of weed is moving ahead at a good clip. Colorado led the way in the United States, and now legalization's on its way in a bunch of states. Canada's working out a process that brings legalization to the whole country sometime this summer. We're going to talk about the moves toward legalization of weed in South Africa. Weed's commonly referred to as DAGA there. And the legalization process has evolved differently there because the legal jurisprudence on DAGA in South Africa has really been driven by one man. Gareth Prince is a legally trained attorney, and for the last 17 years, he's brought cases aimed at making DAGA legal. And his use of DAGA is for religious purposes. Gareth is a Rastafarian. Thanks a lot for joining us, Gareth Prince. Well, thanks very much for having me, and good afternoon to all of the listeners. Can you explain where South Africa is on legalization right now? Because some people think it's legal now in South Africa, but it's a little bit of a negotiation. It is very much so. And whereas I personally, I'm not really comfortable with the terminology of legalization, depenalization, decriminalization, because that all forms part of a paradigm that we, the indigenous folks here in South Africa, has never been a part of. What we promote is the freedom of cannabis. Now, freedom, as you would well know, the cliche is that it comes with great responsibility. So that is a conversation that we want to have within South Africa, that this issue is not about recreation or it's not about drug taking, but it's about freedom of choice and the ability of people to determine for themselves a life project that need not necessarily coincide with what the majority wants. So currently in South Africa, the position is that even though we had a victory on the 31st of March 2017, when our high court decided that the laws against cannabis are unconstitutional and our government needs to change them. Now, the legal system in South Africa is of such a nature that if a law gets found unconstitutional by a high court, then that finding must first be confirmed by our highest court, which is our constitutional court, uh, which is more like your Supreme Court in the States. And that court would have to confirm the finding of the high court before the finding of the high court becomes valid. So although technically speaking, we got a victory a year ago or a little bit more than a year ago in the high court, the position, technically speaking, is still the same as if the law hasn't changed, because the constitutional court must first confirm the finding of the high court in order for the law to technically change. So does this mean that people, if they are smoking in their own homes, is that against the law still? Technically speaking, in South Africa, it is still illegal for you to be in possession of even one seed or any particular part of this plant. That's how egregious and vast the cannabis laws in South Africa are at the moment. They criminalize every part of the plant. And they've made it totally illegal. There's, there's no talks about any religious or cultural or recreational reasons. Possession is illegal, period. I wonder if we could walk back 17 years and talk about why you started your legal challenges in the first place and how you did that. I mentioned that you're legally trained as an attorney, but you're technically not an attorney. Uh, what happened there? Well, I managed to complete my law degrees just as South Africa became a constitutional democracy in 1994. That's when I was fully qualified. I completed my legal training. So I was definitely ready to enter the legal fraternity. 
I, however, mentioned the fact that I was convicted for possession of cannabis during my student days, and I explained to the Law Society, which is the professional body that kind of like they have to okay you to enter the profession, and I confessed to them that I have a criminal record, but that my criminal record wasn't as a result of recklessness or youthful insolence, but that it was rather as a result of a cultural conviction. And the fact that I abstained from tobacco or that I abstained from alcohol and the fact that I've been a vegetarian for years, in my mind, should have persuaded them that I have the necessary discipline in order to handle my cannabis usage. But their thinking was somebody that is supposed to be a lawyer must engender respect for the law in the eyes of the general populace. And with me saying that I am going to continue to break the law by using cannabis as part of my lifestyle. They thought that that was disrespectful towards law and I was considered not fit and proper to practice as an attorney because I blatantly disrespected the law. So in 2001, we brought the challenge seeing that South Africa was a very, very young democracy at the time. I was myself, I'm like, I was realistic enough to realize that to ask for outright decriminalization at the time was never going to work because our society, frankly, wasn't ready for that. But we wanted to get a foot into the door. So we argued that by arguing that an exemption must be made for the Rastafari people, seeing that the usage of cannabis is forms, it is our sacrament, and therefore it forms a very essential part of our religion. We felt that, well, seeing that they at the time made space for the gays and lesbians, that there was hope that they would make space for the Rastafari people. However, that never happened because the issue of gays did not really involve the state having to do anything. It more meant the state having to refrain from engaging in a particular action, which was to discriminate against gays or lesbians. But in the case of cannabis or Dacha, that meant a real shift in the economic status within the country. Because of the whole argument that it seems that only white people can profit of pain, but if black and brown people seem to be making a little money of pain or of drugs, then, oh, lo and behold, that is a great evil. So in this country, they just decided, no, no, Dacha is just a no-no. And they, instead of showing sympathy for the Rastafari way of life and for the indigenous way of life, they continued to criminalize us. So they didn't bother about the fact that I studied for years and I qualified perfectly according to their standards. And the only thing that was keeping me back from practicing my profession was the fact that I chose to be principled about my way of life. So at the time, the Constitutional Court, in a very close decision, six judges voted against me and five judges voted for me. And they decided that cannabis is too dangerous a substance, uh, certainly to trust the Rastafarians alone with having it. And they basically felt that an exemption was not practically viable within our society. I'm talking with Gareth Prince. He has been bringing cases for the last 17 years, trying to make cannabis use legal in South Africa, and he's making some good headway. So you lost on the religious freedom challenge, but you brought another challenge, and that's the one that has made the progress that it's made today. Right you are. So 16 years later, I was again arrested while staying in the southern suburbs here in Cape Town in South Africa. And uh, police simply busted into my house because I'm the only Rastafarian that stays in a rather uptownish area. And they were probably just wondering what I was doing there. So they came into my house without a warrant, robbed me of my plants that I was supposed to harvest on the day. And that set in motion the constitutional challenge that we won in the High Court on the 31st of March 2017. 
So this time around, based on the progress that has been made in states like Colorado and Washington, D.C., ironically, the law in Washington, D.C., or the American law, came into operation on the 6th of December, 2012, which happens to be my birthday. So that, for me, it's, that was a good sign. So we initiated our constitutional court challenge in 2013, and the matter eventually came before court in 2017. So this time around, we argued that the laws are unconstitutional for several jurisprudential grounds, and that they are also unconstitutional for several constitutional grounds. And the High Court upheld the challenge on the grounds that the existing cannabis law violate the laws to privacy. Uh, we felt that that was a bit of a cop-out on the part of the High Court because the clear argument was that the laws violated the laws on equality in the sense that ours is a country that allows people to smoke themselves into cancer or to drink themselves into kairosis, but it doesn't allow people to use cannabis. So we argued that there was an equality issue here, but the court upheld our challenge on the basis of privacy. Then that matter was taken to our constitutional court on the 7th of November, 2017. And the constitutional court then heard our hearing for confirming the order that was made in the Western Cape High Court. That is the decision that we are currently still waiting on. How is this related to the Washington, D.C. decision? And um, what exactly does this open the door to? Does this open the door to more than marijuana if you have the right to privacy on other drugs? Is there other banned substances that could go in the same door? Principally speaking, the argument holds for all banned substances. So if you were to make a principled argument as to the reason why people should abstain from particular substances as such, then the argument is that criminal laws can never be the solution to substance abuse. Because the argument is that the problem of substance abuse is not a problem for the criminal justice system. It is a problem for our social health system. And the approach that you have towards solving a social health problem is fundamentally different from the approach that you would use in order to solve a criminal justice problem. If people suffer from drug addiction, then they must be seen as patients, and patients need help, not prison. So that approach whereby you tried via force to scare people to abstaining from particular substances or scare them from not using, that is an approach that has failed dismally, and that has only resulted in the incarceration of predominantly African-American people in your country. And in this country, it has led to the incarceration of First Nation people predominantly. So you're moving almost whole hog towards a Portugal model. That would be your better situation. Personally, I would prefer the Uruguay situation. In a situation where government controls the chain of action from start to finish, if people were to grow, then they must grow for the government. Now, some people might just say, but yeah, uh, government is corrupted at the end of the day, but that does not detract from the principle that in our country, in our situation, it must be a government-controlled action because the alternative to that means that you would have to open it up for each and everyone to use. But today in South Africa, that is not viable because cannabis in the first place must be the primary source of poverty alleviation within this country. And if you were just to allow a legalization situation, then that would mean that people with money and land, which at this particular time in South Africa, are 5% of the people. 95% of the people do not have land. They do not have money. So this whole legalization thing that people are doing all over the world is not working towards the benefit of those that have suffered for this plan. 
but it's playing right into the hands of the two percenters of the people of this world. And that is a situation that we do not want and which I've argued South Africa presents an opportunity for us to give to the world a new cannabis model, one that would not just necessarily see the haves benefiting and then the have-nots still continuing to suffer, but a situation where this plant that is this country's most natural and reliable resource be used for the upliftment of the people first and foremost. Yes, we support a situation where indeed if you want to have the right to cultivate your own for your own usage, you must have that freedom. But when it comes to commercial cultivation, we believe that there should be some kind of checks and balance measure at least for the first 10 years within South Africa. I'm talking with Gareth Prince. He's legally trained as an attorney for the last 17 years. He's been bringing legal cases in South Africa and has made a lot of headway on freedom for DAGA in South Africa. If your appeal is held up at the Constitutional Court, if the ruling is validated by the Constitutional Court, do you get to go and get your law degree then? <laughs> do, you, do you want to go get your law degree? How do you handle that? Well, for sure. I was born for this profession, mate, and I'm already qualified. It's just that they've refused to allow me to enter the profession to get the certification. However, if the Constitutional Court upholds the High Court decision, then that means that they've prevented me from working on the basis of a malicious law. And it is for that they tend to one would have to pay me compensation for not having allowed me to work for the past 20 years when it was within their ability to do so. They, however, very hypocritically and cowardly hid behind the fact that they said that, well, as long as there is a law in the country that prohibits people from using cannabis, it would not be fitting for us to allow you to practice as an attorney. Whereas one of the most famous constitutional court judges in our country said in his minority judgment uh, in the 651 that I lost, and he said that, well, our country hasn't suffered from having rebels within our ranks. It is indeed those that have elevated the consciousness of our country to a level that we would not have had if they were not part of us. And, you know, that's the Mandela's and the Brown Fishers and the Mohandas Gandhi's. You know, they were all attorneys and they were all considered not to be fit and proper. But today they are amongst the most elevated personalities in world consciousness. So the fact that they were scorned and rejected at first, yeah, that was very tragic at the time, but look at how they ended up. Whereas those who initially thought that they were on top of the world, today they are the criminals that we know they are because apartheid is a crime against humanity and will continue to be one. What has this meant for your life? You didn't actually get to practice as an attorney. Um, how do you do this? Yo. Good question, my brother. Day at a time. You know, I'm like, I, I started when I was still young, when I wasn't married, when I didn't have any kids. As a young firebrand, you know, you, you just go out, you know. But since having met my wife and I now have two beautiful children that I have to provide for, although I can't practice, I've been giving legal advice mostly to people within my community. So I draw up documents, although I can't represent people in court. I do most of the stuff for them until they go to court. And I prepare them for that process. And that's what I've been doing for the past 20 years and being a Rastafari, being true to myself and being true to my calling. I've had an association with cannabis all my life and I will continue to do so for the rest of my life. And I do not consider my actions to be in violation of the law because my principle is that if injustice becomes law, then resistance becomes duty.
And there's an old Zulu saying in my country that says that one that is first to walk past the village of the cannibals inevitably ends up in the pot. But the way past the village needs to be paved in order for the community members to come past for them to go to greener pastures. So the fact that I've been the sacrificial goat in the sense, you know, I give thanks for that. And the fact that I'm still here, I've survived the past 20 years, my spirits are not down, and I've got hope for the future. You know, that shows us, indeed, the struggle has been long, but the victory is going to be much sweeter. How did you come into the Rastafarian faith? Uh, you did that while you were in college, I, hear, I understand? You know, as growing up in South Africa, you know, I grew up under the apartheid system. So the intent was to separate the indigenous people from who they are, who they were, their culture, their own story. So going to university, that was the first time that I saw a picture of Nelson Mandela. That's how strict the apartheid regime were. To have pictures of freedom fighters was a crime. So it's only when I came to university that I intermingled with members of other races. Because growing up under apartheid, you grow up as like, it's brown people in this community. There are no blacks. There are no whites. And the situation between yous are always one of tension. However, the Rastafari way of life came to teach me that, you know, until the philosophy which holds one race superior and another inferior is totally discredited, abandoned and destroyed, there will be war amongst the children of humanity. So Rastafari came to teach us that you have to love yourself for who and what you are. And studying my own story, I came to find that, wow, that the story of the Bible and but seeing it through the perspective of black people, that is what brought me to Rastafari. And the fact that it is reggae music that conscientized me towards the reality of the day. Because the apartheid government never prepared us for that. It taught us an artificial reality and it wanted us to believe falsehood. But it is Rastafari that introduced me to the truth, the undiluted truth. And that is what attracted me to it. And that is what has kept me at it. And that is what inspired me to fight for the liberation and the freedom of the Rastafari people. Because I'm not saying that we are a perfect people, but we are a people that are indigenous in the first place. Although I'm a Rastafari didn't emanate from South Africa in this day and age, all Africans come from Africa. And in that regard, we are one of the mother cities and one of the origins and the foundation of the Rastafari movement. So it is Rastafari that has kept it real for me and that has opened me up to the situation and it has enabled me to deal with my reality and not to become a bitter, hateful person, but to become a hopeful person and knowing that cannabis is the future. And thereby, I mean, we're not saying just that, but because in this 21st century, having natural and reliable energy sources is what it's all about. The oil culture is coming to an end. And we are saying that cannabis has the ability to replace that. And cannabis is the one thing that has the ability to make Africa an economic giant once we understand the potential and what it is that we have right here. And my favorite philosophical saying is make use of what you have to get what you want. Well, congratulations on everything you've accomplished so far. Gareth Prince is a legally trained attorney, and for the last 17 years, he's brought cases aimed at making cannabis legal in South Africa. And thanks a lot for joining us. Congratulations. Thanks for having me, and yeah, keep up the good work, yeah?
Coming up after the break, we'll talk about history and trends in the Holy Land. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Reverend Alex Awad was born in Palestine and served there for three decades as missionary of the General Board of Global Ministries. He was dean of Bethlehem College in uh, Bethlehem. And we're going to talk about history and trends in the Holy Land. It's great to have you, Reverend Alex Awad. Yeah, I'm honored to be with you. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of history here. When I say you were born in Palestine, I mean you were born in Palestine, and it, this year is 70 years since uh, Israel's independence or the Nakba, if you're Palestinian. Uh, what was your experience there? Well, you know, I was born 1946, so I was born two years before the Nakba, which is the same word as catastrophe, the disaster that befell the Palestinian people in 1948. So uh, two years after I was born, uh, our neighborhood in West Jerusalem was attacked by uh, militia that uh, today we call it Israel, Israeli militia, and they uh, pushed us out of our neighborhood. Uh, My father was not... uh, a soldier. He was not a fighter. He was a civilian. And one day he, in 1948, he was going to work and he was shot and killed by a sniper. And uh, immediately after that, my mother took us seven children and we became refugees from West Jerusalem to East Jerusalem. We lost everything we ever had and we joined hundreds of thousands of Palestinians that were forcefully uh, pushed out of their homes and became refugees in that year. So I was, uh, you know, my childhood was a tragedy. My mother had to put us in boarding schools because uh, she couldn't afford to work full-time and have seven children at home. She was a committed Christian woman. Her motto was never look back, always look forward, never ask why God. Always ask how, God. Never harbor any hatred in your heart. Always forgive. And amazing at that time in 1948 for a woman to think that way, but she really taught us nonviolence when we were still little kids and turned our home from disaster into a blessing because of her presence and her faith in God. Uh, As your family went through the years, You describe it as a blessing, but I imagine the circumstances, I mean, they they get worse for Palestinians over these decades. Oh, certainly. Uh, I mean, the blessing is that I had a Christian mother who knew how to deal with the conflict 
and who knew how to make us rich while we were in total poverty. We were very, very poor. Yet, I would say for Palestinian people in general and including my family, it was a miserable time. It was a hard time. And the sad thing about it, it did not stop in 1948. 1967, you have the other uh, problem. And uh, up until today, until a few weeks ago in Gaza, so for the last 70 years, we never have a peaceful day as Palestinians in the Middle East. But one humiliation after another hum- humiliation, one catastrophe after another catastrophe. And the sad thing about it is that those who are causing us so much trouble are blaming us for the trouble. You mentioned the just a few weeks ago in Gaza and the thing that Gaza protesters are doing, they want a right to return. They're, they're protesting this very thing that happened to you uh, 70 years ago. Yes, actually about 70%, 70 to 75% of the population of Gaza are people who are refugees. Their homes, their farms are in what we call today Israel proper. And so these were pushed either in 1948 or 1967, pushed out of their homes by force. They live in the Gaza Strip. They have a desire to go back to their homes. So the demonstration is really these people are saying to the world, 70 years is enough trouble. Let us get back to our home or at least let us have some kind of peace and justice. And that's why uh, these people gathered around the border of Gaza. And, you know, it's... I mean, Israel looks at it, though, as the whole refugee return issue as a threat. And this is going to cause the end of the state of Israel. You you can't actually have refugees return. That won't won't work. Well, as long as uh, the Israelis have racist policies where they have the right to live in the land, and other people who are Palestinians, they don't have to, uh, the right to live in the land. Yes, they will see Palestinians as a threat. But once the Israelis will accept the notion this land can be big enough for Palestinians and Israelis to live together in peace, then Palestinians will be no more threats, but they will be neighbors to Israelis. So the Palestinians have expressed many, many times our desire to be good neighbors of Israel Either in a two-state solution or in a one-state solution, the Israelis so far until today, they have rejected both options. Uh, It's often seen as the reverse, of course. The Israelis say, well, the Palestinians keep rejecting uh, the, uh, the, the peace deals. Yeah, if I have to give credit to the Israelis, they have very good propaganda. They really know how to twist facts. I mean, they can shoot a person who is, you know, demonstrating totally peacefully, you know, children at the Gaza border, demonstrating absolutely peacefully with no weapons in their hands. And they go to the world and say, look at these terrorists and what they are doing to us, making those totally peaceful demonstrators, the villains, the terrorists, and they, the Israelis who are shooting and killing, they are the good people. I'm talking with Reverend Alex Ovad, and he was born in Palestine, and he was uh, in Jerusalem for many years as uh, with the General Board of Global Ministries there. Um, now, when we talk about something like Jerusalem, um, 
the United States changed its policy on Jerusalem and is going to move its embassy to Jerusalem, the first uh, country to do so. And um, a lot, the U.S. Congress has been saying, let's do this since the 90s. And Donald Trump has promised his, during his campaign he would do this. And he's the he's going to stick to his campaign promise and do this. He, he said it. There were protests. Um, but not much happened. It's it, it, uh, there were protests. And, and maybe it can, can we survive this thing? Well, you know, as humans, we can survive. Yeah. But the problem uh, is when the Middle East get in greater turmoil, when there are more wars and tensions in the Middle East, what Trump is doing by moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem is really laying another level of turmoil to make Palestinians, Arabs, and Muslims angry. That anger, sooner or later, is going to flare into problems and into tensions and possibly future wars. So why do you do that? Why don't you look at the other side of this issue and recognize that Jerusalem is holy to Jews, to Christians, and to Muslims? There are 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. They consider Jerusalem holy, and they don't want this move of the embassy to Jerusalem unless there is peace between Israelis and Palestinians and they can sit down together after a peace process and discuss the possibility of where is the capital of Israel and where is the capital of future Palestine. But before a peace process to move the capital to Jerusalem, it really goes against international law and consensus. The United States seems to be cooking up a peace deal with Saudi Arabia, and they want to bring uh, the parties together on a different kind of peace deal. Um, what do you think of the direction the Trump administration is heading there? Well, the United States is not at war with Saudi Arabia, and Israel is not at war with Saudi Arabia. Is The threat is the problem is between the Palestinians and the Israelis. If the United States want to speak with people, they need to speak with Palestinians. If the Israelis want to speak with people, they need to speak with their Palestinian neighbors. So you, you don't need to bypass the Palestinians to go to the Saudis. Just go directly to the people who are the root, uh, you know, uh, cause of the tension in the Middle East, both Israelis and Palestinians. Palestinians have them sit together with an even-handed U.S. policy in the Middle East because that is where the problem is. United States policy for the last 50 years have been lopsided towards the Israeli, biased towards the Israeli side. And unless this thing changes, we can't expect peace in the Middle East. I wanted to uh, get your thoughts about a campaign that's been going on. And uh, in the U.S. Congress, it's proved pretty popular about detention of Palestinian children. Um, you're wearing a button about the campaign. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, what happens with Palestinian children who get uh, detained on a regular basis? Well, the United States is giving Israel billions and billions of dollars every year, military aid, economic aid, uh, political aid at the United Nations. So the least that the United States can expect from Israel is to uphold human rights to 
the Palestinian people that are under Israeli occupation. So when the Israelis are arresting Palestinians, uh, Palestinians' children, uh, over uh, hundred thousand Palestinian children have been arrested since the year two thousand in terrible conditions with a lot of brutality and abuse. So I really um, uh, value the efforts of uh, uh, Congresswoman Betty McCollum and other congressmen and women who are joining here and telling uh, U.S. officials it is time to stop the abuse of Palestinian children and it's time to tell Israel that this cannot go on while we continue to support Israel with billions and billions of dollars. Reverend Alex Awad was dean of the Bethlehem Bible College, and he was uh, for three decades a missionary of the General Board of Global Ministries. You can see him speak uh, at several places the next few days. You're going to be at the Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Oak Park tomorrow night at 6.30. You are on Sunday going to be at the Burning Bush Gallery at the Gary United Methodist Church in Wheaton on from 2 to 4 tomorrow after, or Saturday afternoon. And then uh, you're in Barrington on Sunday, and you're uh, endorsing Holy Land tours. Come and see, and uh, the Barrington United Methodist Church will host you, uh, and you'll be discussing uh, how to tour the Holy Land and going and seeing for yourself, which I imagine is a very fruitful thing to do. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's my honor. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about North Korea. There's meetings between North Korea and South Korea tomorrow, and we'll chat about what's going on there on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.